This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Last year, I was honored to be asked to serve as a judge to determine who would be awarded a generous grant from the Aftermath Project, a nonprofit organization which, for over a decade, has supported the work of photographers telling the stories of what happens when war and conflict end. All day long, my fellow judges and I looked at photographs and read the proposals of stories of how people and communities struggle to return to a state of normalcy after years of violence, betrayal, and desperation. What happens to the people left behind when the journalists and diplomats have left to pursue another story or other troubles? It's that question that has been at the heart of the work of today's guest, Sarah Terry, a photographer and filmmaker. For her, it is the story of what comes after that that she feels is deserving of our attention, especially after the more obvious stories have been told and pictures have been made. She believes that these narratives deserve more than a clinical exposition of facts. Even when a forensic anthropologist she was working with asked her to make an image in a mass grave, she realized that there was a moment of hope in the midst of unimaginable tragedy. And, and she's going, Sarah, here, look here. And, and so I, like, I put her little point-and-shoot up to my eye, and like I nearly threw up because she was holding the preserved hand. Uh, preserved not like we would think of hands today, but the, um, unusually well-preserved hands of, of what had been a teenage boy from Srebrenica. Attached to his body, and and it was a really important forensic anthropological thing, and she wanted me to document it. And so, as I took the picture for her, and, and it was just like, oh my god, I, I, let me get out of here fast. I was like, oh no, Sarah, that's the picture you've been waiting to make. And I picked up the Leica, and I made a photograph of Eva and Piotr in that grave, with those surrounded by these horrible things, and Eva is holding the hand of this boy. And it, it's like the final image in the love and death chapter. It's, the definitive, it's one of the most definitive images in my career because I realize that, that the, that's the place I want to stand after war. I want to be there when humanity shows up and says, no, you don't get the last word. The evil that made this happen, you know, the horror that was in this moment, you don't get the last word because we show up, you know, because we're human, because we aren't going to say, you know, that's the end. We're here. For her photographic work, She's been honored with a Guggenheim Fellowship as well as a membership in the Photo Agency 7. But despite her many accomplishments as a photographer, her professional career actually began as a writer and journalist. And it likely would have remained that way had it not been for a personal tragedy that changed her life forever. Instead of words, she turned to photography to rediscover herself and find a new visual language by which to express yourself. In that first summer as I began shooting, there's things that are still in my work today. And I, I worked a lot around the edges of the frames. I did a lot of reflections um, and a lot of um, kind of windows. And I didn't, uh, and, and, and fragments, a lot of, of 
pieces of things. And in that particular summer, I had um, a lot of pieces of body parts that, that would show up, like a hand on the edge of a frame, you know, broken a broken statue foot. I mean, I remember those images, and I showed them. There weren't a lot of people who knew what was going on in my life at that time, but one of my really close friends did, and she had an art history background. And when I came home from Italy that summer, I showed I was showing her a few things, and I said, isn't this crazy? Like, look at all these, like, I don't know why I'm shooting everything in fragments. And she just looked at me, and she said, Sarah, your, your life has been shattered into a million pieces you're trying to make sense of it. It's not a surprise at all. I'll talk to Sarah about her many projects, including her documentation of forgiveness practices in several countries in Africa, including Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and South Africa, and also how the Aftermath Project came into being. Welcome to The Candid Frame. Welcome to the show. It's really a pleasure to have a chance to see you and talk with you again. Thank you, Abarnix. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, because we didn't. We were so busy judging for the aftermath project. We really didn't have a, a, a real decent time to sit out and chat. Our dinner afterwards was very nice. Dinner was good. Yeah, but we sure did a lot of judging. Oh my god, and that was a lot of work, which we're going, we're going to talk about here. Okay. What was really interesting about you in in doing my research for you is that you didn't start as a photographer and you kind of you changed up at some point. You were a journalist for the um, Christian Science Monitor. You did stuff, probably NPR, was it before or after? I helped start the Monitor's public radio program, so that's where my first public radio was. And then I went freelance into magazines, Rolling Stone, Boston Globe Magazine, New York Times Magazine. And then here in L.A., I came back around to guest hosting at KCRW for Warren oh, Holiday. okay. And so what was the catalyst for you picking up the camera? It's a long story, but the short version is that... Give us a long version. <laughs> I don't think you want it. We'll go, <laughs> we'll go short version and you can see. It's a deeply personal space in my life. It, yeah. I had a... There's a personal crisis in my life when words failed me for the first time in my life. And I mean, they failed me. Yeah. And I... For somebody who... The joke in my family was that I grew up talking. You know, my sixth grade teacher thought I was going to be a criminal defense attorney, and mm. the vice principal thought I would be a union labor leader. I mean, that's how I used words. It's how I trusted them. And they didn't work when I needed them to. So it was just such a shock to me that I, I literally stopped writing. I stopped taking assignments. And I stopped talking to most of the people I knew, kind of by accident. I picked up a camera as a way of trying to communicate with somebody that, that couldn't be reached by words at that time. The images were to remind him of who he was and what his memories were. Mm -hmm. And along the way, I found out that instead of me telling him where he had been, I, the images started to tell me where I was going. And I fell in love with it. It became, it became the language I'd always looked for. When I was, when I was married, my, my ex is a, is a musician, and he, he literally breathes through music by playing guitar. And he would say to me, but that's what writing is like for you, isn't it? And I was like, no. You know, if mm -hmm. you told me tomorrow I could never write another page of one news story again, I'd be fine with that. And, and then when I found photography, you know, it was like, oh, that's the language I understand now. I, that's how I breathe. You can't, I'd, I'd die if you took it away from me. How long was that period where you had stopped writing and before you picked up the camera? Was that a pretty long time? It was almost concurrent that I stopped writing and picked up the camera because okay. I was trying to be in conversation. But the period of transition for me lasted about, I don't know, two years, three years wow. where I was picking up the camera. And it was another mm, two or three years before I let words come back into my work. I used to, I used to, with photography at first, I was so 
if so, people started talking about their work or you know talking about photography, I would like leave the room. I only could absorb it by by looking at it and watching it. So, yeah, it, took, it was a process of re-knitting and re-healing and just reprioritizing the different languages mm-hmm. you know that I have: verbal, visual. You know. And you started with a flip phone, right? I did. I was one. Of, no, well, actually, I started. What did I have at the time? I had a Pentax. I moved into a Leica pretty quickly. I was working with Ektachrome. But for within that period of time, within a couple of years after I think I started shooting, I um, the Sony Ericsson P910 came out, and that was the first camera phone. And I was one of the first people shooting with it. Robert Clark and I were the only people I know who actually did projects mm. with it, with those little tiny retro 166 kilobyte files <laughs> that are magic. You know, I had a show of it a year or so ago, and people are like, what filter did you use? Oh, and I'm wow. like, not a filter. Not a filter. That would be the limitations of the camera. So yeah, it's a, it's. I love it. I still have. I still found the phone in my studio the other day. Oh, did you? I still have it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite amazing to to think that these cameras that may not be as impressive as DSLRs, mm. but the freedom that it provides you. Mm. Um, did the fact that it was so simple and that it was it, it wasn't burdened by all the choices something that allowed you to find what you felt you were lacking from writing? So the picking up the camera, you know, and finding out that the images were telling me about how I was doing, you know, how I was healing and that that I was getting better. And it was showing, I mean, when I learned that it, when I could see really clearly that a photograph is as much about the person who's making the photograph mm-hmm. as it is about what's being shot, which I think is really, really true, like in street, yeah. um, you know, when you're not going out with any kind of an agenda, like photojournalism, I think the way it helped me heal was so profound. You know, that's why I moved away from words and, and into cameras. And, and with the Sony Ericsson P910, this time in my life just continued to be really tumultuous. It, after getting over this one difficult spot, it kind of was out of the frying pan and into the fire. But I was photographing by then, and I was literally, you know, if you think I travel a lot now, I was crisscrossing the world. I mean, over a period of two years, I was like Ingushetia, Azerbaijan, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Afghanistan, all over the U.S., all these places, and Istanbul. And it was using the cell phone, that cell phone camera at that time, mm-hmm. Who was a way of of uh, I, I made a I, I did a little book out of it. It was like a, a visual diary, and it, it it my life was so chaotic. It was like that little camera it was unencumbered. It was just me. It was and it's really more like a cell phone mm-hmm. even than an iPhone, like a little tiny screen. But it was a way that I could make still lives in this really chaotic life of mine. That they the first one I took, and I remember it blew me away. Was in a a woman's hammam in Istanbul. You know, yeah. a steam bath. Where you're not supposed to have cameras, but I just was so it was so magic. It was very one of the very old hammams, and with the steam coming up, and I just picked the phone up and I and I took a picture. And I remember I sent it to a gallerist who just was like, "Oh my god, you know, like who knew, mm. you know, that cell phones could be used to make art?" And that's still one of my favorite pictures that I've ever made today. But but so then I began knowing that I was echoing Turkish miniatures, you know, those very small paintings. Mm, And so I was working within that continuum. And it just, it was just a way that with that particular piece, and it's somewhat the way I use my iPhone now, it was just a way of setting everything down and just being where I was 
and and looking, you know, for yeah, still lives. It's really interesting that that you discovered that sort of early on in in the process of making pictures because mm-hmm. I think that's something that usually comes later because people are looking at their photographs as these documentary objects and that you're seeing so early on that you were seeing that it was so self-reflective. That has to do with how I healed. I mean, that has to do yeah. with literally, I mean, the so like that first time I went to Tuscany, I was going to take a, I was taking a fiction writing workshop and I stayed to take a photography workshop with somebody I didn't, I'd heard of, but mm. I didn't know much about. And it was Joel Meyerowitz. Oh, okay. During that time, it was funny. Joel was like, you need to be dancing with people. You need to be in the street more. And I was like, no, actually, I don't. That's not where <laughs> I am right now. And in that first summer, as I began shooting, there's things that are still in my work today. And I, I worked a lot around the edges of the frames. I did a lot of reflections and a lot of kind of windows. And I didn't, uh, and, and and fragments, a lot of of pieces of things. And in that particular summer, I had a lot of pieces of body parts that, that would show up, like a hand on the edge of a frame, mm-hmm. you know, broken, a broken statue foot. I mean, I remember those images and I showed them. There weren't a lot of people who knew what was going on in my life at that time, but one of my really close friends did and she had an art history background. And when I came home from Italy that summer, I showed, I was showing her a few things and I said, isn't this crazy? Like, look at all these, like, I don't know why I'm shooting everything in fragments. And she just looked at me and she said, Sarah, you're your life has been shattered into a million pieces. Mm-hmm. You're trying to make sense of it. It's not a surprise at all. And mm-hmm. that's like what did it for me. I was like, oh my gosh, who knew that that's what photography could be and that's what photography could do. So my beginnings in photography were all about intuition and, and, and understanding its relationship to me. I mean, I had been a journalist for 20 years. I'd worked in you know, newspapers, magazines, public radio, won, you know, tons of awards. And and this is a completely different part of who I am that I access when I make a photograph. And it's also why I didn't really go into photojournalism once I picked up that camera, mm-hmm. because I didn't want to repeat what I'd already done as a writer. You know, so it's why I protected that space. It's why I've done long-term projects. It's why I've done other work, you know, um, consulting or teaching or whatever to protect the photography. So, I mean, I'm happy to do reportage or an assignment when it comes up. But, you know, that's kind of a long answer to your saying. I mean, it's where I began in that space. And then largely, I had already had part of a career, you know. Yeah. So I was older. It wasn't like I, I really am so not the technical person. In photography, anything I teach, I'm like, okay, this is not going to be the class where we talk about f-stops and shutter speeds, mm-hmm. although I can do that a little bit. But it, it, it's what I'm always working is to connect people, the students I have, yeah. to, their, to their sort of intuitive voice. Yeah, it seems like it was like the right time for you. Yeah. In, in terms of your career, in terms of what you had accomplished already, but also in terms of this new self that you were discovering mm. in parallel mm. with that. They were and, hand in hand. Yeah, and that they just sort of converged in that sort of one critical moment, and that you found something that gave you a different voice mm. or a different lens through which you could see your life and everything that are around you. It gave me a language mm-hmm. that that I feel most adept at, and being a highly verbal person, you know, it it says a lot that I feel most adept at a nonverbal language. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your your first project, which was in Bosnia, mm. where you photographed the aftermath of of, of the war. And I, I want to continue on this line that mm. we're doing right now because you had, had all this experience as as a writer, where you would get all this information and then you would have to sort of repurpose it to tell a story on the page. Yep. But you go there to Bosnia after the conflict, and you're having to in photographs 
capture and express something that is not easily grasped. Mm-hmm. You know, in conflict, you know, you can shoot, you take a picture of someone shooting a rifle. It's very obvious. Oh, it's images are everywhere, yeah. But the, the, the ramifications of any long conflict sometimes can be very subtle. Mm. So tell me about that, that process of you wanting to tell a tale visually, yet having all this experience as a writer, mm. you know, telling that story in, a, in, in words rather than photographs. It's an interesting, I think the, the project, which was, um, it's called Aftermath, Bosnia's Long Road to Peace. And in, in a lot of ways, that's a transition project for me, because the part of me that had so much training in journalism and so many years of experience came into that project, which is sort of going, okay, now you need to think about the exhumations of the mass graves, and you need to think about returning refugees. You know, I kind of had, I plotted out these five areas, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm a huge respecter of, uh, photographers do so much research, and I respect that on long-term projects. I mean, I'm part of that tradition as well. But I, for two years, I felt myself so, um, and I didn't know it at first, but what, what was happening was I was really weighed down by the sense of journalistic responsibility to get the story right. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally remember the two-year point, I was like, but that's not why I'm a photographer. You know, that was why I was a reporter. That's why right. I was a writer. So what am I missing here? And there were two questions that I worked with, and also poetry, that that helped me go back into that very intuitive space where I would no longer, I mean, I would place myself in situations that mattered, mm-hmm. you know, like the mass graves of, at Sre- of Srebrenica, of the Srebrenica victims, you know, where there was an annual ceremony or I'd be where refugees were returning or I'd, I'd, of course I'd go to the places, but I just freed myself up to respond to the things that trigger me as a photographer. So the first two years were a little more journalistic and then the second two years is where it really unlocked you know, to the kind of work I do. And then they worked together by the end, kind of in the fifth years, I began editing them together. And and, and I pretty much edited to poetry and to, to words again. But it was, I don't know how to say that, like, you just have to, sh- you know what it is? It's like, when I started shooting, I remember somebody going, oh, how fantastic. Now you can take pictures to go with the articles that you write. <laughs> and I remember, I just looked at them and I was like, no, 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 no. That would make me literally crazy. That's mm-hmm. like trying to go into and out of a revolving door at the same time. They are two entirely different ways of thinking. It's, it's why I get so annoyed with what the industry has become and pressuring photographers to also do video, also do writing. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you know what? Then pay for all those three different things because you got those are three different head spaces. Was there a particular photograph that you could point to that when you look at it, you felt like this was an indicator of that transition during that time? Yeah. I know one image that I know was like, I was like, there you go. There's a place in Sarajevo where the architecture of the Ottoman Empire in the old town meets the the sort of newer part of town, which was sort of the Austro-Hungarian architecture of the Habsburg Empire. And it's it's a it's a really physical space. If you're if you just happen to look up, you can kind of go, whoa, those are different buildings. Mm-hmm. And I was shooting into again window reflections, staying with me because that's something I'd worked at from the beginning, and very conscious of what's going on in the reflection and all those layers, and then getting serendipity. But it so it was right at that borderline between the two, and I was photographing a very modern like beauty store 
and in the reflection with, with with like with pictures of women in kind of European hairdos and things, it was like very Western. But then in a corner of the picture, there's more peasant type women and dressed mm-hmm. in scarves, indicating a you know an, a Muslim background, a you know just and a, and a more just their their dress was more peasant. So I was kind of part of the project, you know, it's about those two worlds meeting and and the contradictions and pulls from it. That's one. I think it's the second or third image in the in the first chapter of yeah. the book. It stayed in there. And and also my influences at the time weren't really photography. I didn't know much about other photographers. So my influences were were painting, fine art, you know, so I can look at that work and I go, oh right, there's a, you know, Vermeer, that's a Magritte. Yeah. There's, you know, so that's there's a, you know, very much an MC Escher type work in there. There's an image which I think is part of that period of a fish tank with fish on, mm. the, on, mm-hmm. the, on the either the hood mm-hmm. or the boot of the car. Yeah, that's the cover photo. You're right. That's yeah. a great example. So that image for me is really interesting because it is a less than obvious photograph. <laughs> In, in terms of the subject matter that you're... That what would you say the subject matter is if you look at that? It is a stumper. Yeah, but I think that, one, the ability to recognize it is is one thing. I mean, it's sort of odd that you have this fish tank on there. But within the context of the sort of the story you're telling, I think it's something that a lot of people would miss. Mm. And I think that when I when I think of any sort of documentary or, or photojournalistic work that involves issues of conflict, so much of it revolves around people. Mm. And this image is really sort of a, a sort of a fascinating one because as you start exploring it a little more, you start going, "Wait a second <laughs> you know? so so for you, did you have an understanding of why you were making the photograph, or were you just drawn by the visual elements in the scene to make the photograph, and then the context came later so the the goldfish bowl is like a perfect example like i'm I'm glad you picked it out um, and remember I said I had a couple of questions that I set myself up. To, to, that was the assignment I gave myself. No longer the literal stuff. You know, like I, I no longer worried if I was capturing things exactly like, oh, that represents yeah. this. So the question I had on that trip was, what am I not seeing? Mm. And if you ask yourself that as a photographer, you know, and that's one of the key questions in a course I teach about finding your visual voice. But it's like, it's not, did I get X, Y, Z? Did I do, you know, this, that, and the other? And this was maybe three years into my work, and it was like, what am I not seeing? And that particular day, I had been, it had been a really tough, long day of shooting. I think I'd been at the sort of religious, Catholic religious site, Medjugorje, where, where there had supposedly been a sighting of the Virgin Mary in the 60s, I think it was. And I, that particular day, just wanted to get down to the coast of Croatia, where there's a hotel I liked, where I was going to have just a break. So I'm kind of flying down the road, and I look to my right, and there's a guy with his car parked by the side of the road, and there's goldfish tanks on his car. And it's like, you know, nothing else around. And I looked at it, and I was like, well, that's odd. And the voice in my head, because I'm really tuned into the, this question I've given myself mm-hmm. for that whole trip. What am I not seeing? And um, it was like, stop the car. I was like, yeah, no, I can't want to get down to the coast before it gets dark. And I made it, I don't know, a few hundred yards more down the road, and the voice came yeah. up, stop the car. And I was like, no, no, like, my mom's a goldfish bowls. What do I care? And I got, I don't know, maybe half a mile down the road, and it was like, stop the freaking car. And I was like, got it. And I turned around, and I came back and photographed the goldfish bowls. It was an extraordinary, absurdist 
moment and space, and it became the cover of the book because I understood that if I put the first image in the book, which is such a beautiful image of a widow looking into body bags, it's not a graphic one, mm-hmm. but it's you know it's that's what it is. And I thought if I put that co- that photo on the cover, people are going to look at it and go, "Oh, I know what that is. I'm not going to. I don't want to read that book yeah. or look at that book." And I thought, but if I put the picture of the goldfish bowls on the cover, people won't be able to say they know what the book is about. And then years later, um, Ann Tucker, who you probably know, is the, she's now the curator emeritus at the Museum of Fine Arts, Houston, mm-hmm. like one of the smartest people in the world on photography. She had bought three pictures from the project for the museum's collection. And she was looking at the goldfish bowl picture and she said, Sarah, do you think this picture is about a desire for healing or something like that? And I'm like, I don't know, Anne, I kind of think of it as like the world was looking at Bosnia like it was a goldfish bowl during the war. And I'm kind of blathering on and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Ann Tucker. Shut up. You know, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I just stopped and said, um, Anne, what do you think? And she said that picture is all about um, the desire for a return to beauty and light. She said it's a, like it's a perfect, you know, summation of, of your work. And mm. I was like, Wow. So yeah, so you have to like disassociate your your mental impressions. You have to like stop yeah. the side of the door, the revolving door that wants to get out, and you have to like I, literally. I tell people I, I like tie the part of myself up that's the thinking part of me. I will tie it up and put it in a closet when I need to go out and shoot and and get to the heart of something. Yeah, it's it's, it's a it's a sign of any good story or any good photograph when different people can read it. And then they put themselves in, the, and each of them comes out with a very different interpretation. That photo, I've had 13-year-olds in classrooms in South Africa where I was teaching visual literacy. I've had the the ways that people go after that photo and the things that they know and say about it. And, mm-hmm. and of course, our, like, our own experiences feed that, right? Our own our own reactions, our own perceptions, our own lives, you know, are what help us read an image like that. That is not telling, that image is not telling you what to think. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's the, the one great thing in the photo that I love, because there's a lot of photos in the book that echo this, there's a road that goes down the right-hand side of the picture. And the title of the project is, you know, Bosnia, the aftermath, Bosnia's Long Road to Peace. Mm-hmm. So that just kind of subtly supports it. I mean, I think when you're really dialed in to the emotional space, the intuitive space, to whatever trigger you need, poetry, I use the poetry of Wisława Szymborska a lot, or poetry in whatever place I'm working. But if you're dialed in there, then I think you're working like firing in a really amazing way to the connections that, that live beneath the surface, yeah. you know, that become universal. They don't become so didactic, you know, and that that's actually the type of photography I'm, you know, most drawn to. But it's I think it's because that's what photography did for me, right? It went beneath the surface of my life and showed me what I was going through. Yeah. You said that uh, you like photographs that ask questions mm-hmm. rather than being sort of definitive. And mm-hmm. I think that is probably one of the most difficult things to succeed at doing in a photograph because we're so accustomed to being absolute about mm. what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So when you expect that from, from a photograph, how do you, how do you translate that into, into a way of seeing and being in a moment that is understandable to people who are aspiring to create images that are that kind of nuanced and complex and not just so... How do you make it, you mean? Like, how do you, what, what do you... Yeah, it's, it's an interesting proposition, the idea of images that, that ask questions. Because when I'm 
making a photograph, I'm typically aware of every element in the frame and the relationship between all of those things. And I'm very much sort of in control over what the image looks like. And to some degree, I am in control of what I'm trying to express in that photograph. Right. Mm. And then the idea of making it open-ended in a way, I think has to be about being able to allow or invite some elements into the frame that I'm not in complete control over. I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to sort of yeah. reach, reach this sort of idea of how, because the, the idea of creating images that raise questions is a really interesting one, but how sort of translate that into the actual mechanics of seeing and photographing is one that's sort of eluding me. You know, it's kind of like, again, it, this is exactly what I, I work with photographers in that class I teach about visual voice, but you have to like approach the work not knowing. Right, you have to. So the the I think the tools that you have, you practice your tools, you practice complex compositions. You know that the, all that stuff finally, you know, becomes interior to your process. You know, like it took me maybe a year, I think, of consciously practicing complex compositions, working with foreground, middle ground, yeah. background, putting myself in places where I could make it happen. You know, I was very consciously thinking about it, and about a year or so, I think I just it just integrated into the way I think and see. And so it's there. I know it's there. Like I know, I know the things that 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 trigger me. I know how I respond to light. I know what gesture does for me. Like those are just things I know about myself. And so, in making a photograph, it's kind of like you have to put all that aside. You have to enter the space of not knowing. It's like a, it, you you have to let the photo show you where it is. Mm-hmm. And, and everything that you know how to do is going to be there for you, right? The, all those tools also become part of your subconscious. And they won't fail you. You know, I have like a really great exercise somebody gave me very early on. It was Stephen Ferry, I think, about how to b- compose better in color. Mm-hmm. It was like, you walk down the street and you pick a color that's on the street. You have to be moving to do this. And let's say you notice the, like a, a forest green sign. And then as you keep walking down the street... You have to look for that green everywhere you go. And it's got to be the exact green, not just any shade of green, okay. but that shade of green. So you're looking for it as you go. So you're, so what you're doing in that training exercise is you're training your eye to be assessing where color is and how to, it composes in a photo. And then that ultimately, once it internalizes, it starts emerging just naturally. You start composing in color. So those, so those tools are always there. And, you know, and sometimes I'm conscious of something. Sometimes I'm kind of like, oh, wait, I need to move a little bit, you know, to this direction or whatever. That's natural. But, you know, it's it's also like I find students want to tell me what a photo is about. Yeah. They talk about it. They go, and this, I felt this way and I was doing that and that. And I literally am notorious in my teaching for going to say nothing, say nothing, because I can't hear your photo if you're talking to me about it. You know, it's a competing voice in my head. Stop. You know, there's a conversation this photo wants to have with me, you know, with all of us. And it wants to have it with you, too, you person who made the photo, you know. So you can't always work that way. You know, if I'm if you're on an assignment, if you're doing reportage, you're all of course, you're having to think through what the editor needs. What's the shot? That's the opening shot. Mm -hmm. What's your, you know, interior stuff. But even in that context, you can still kind of kick into this space. And I think one way to do it is just to, like, like go shoot on a weekend or put yourself in a place that makes you feel very secure Okay. or another way. I would, I would probably start there. You can also go into another space that's like completely jarring and you don't know what's going on. That's maybe a next step down the road. And then just like shoot, you know, it's just like 
it's, I don't even like the word shoot pictures so much. I like make pictures. But this, the, the reason I love teaching this visual voice class is it's because it's a process of several exercises in a row. I can mm-hmm. break people down, you know, from the thinking process. Yeah. And they can see what their photos are, are saying. Your yeah. photos are telling you a lot. Yeah, I think it's really kind of interesting because it, 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 takes, it takes you from making pictures in a way that you think they should look like right. to images that are yours. Yeah. That are nobody else. See, so the images of what it should look like, mm-hmm. those are the pictures that, generally speaking, 100 people standing in the same place would make exactly that picture. Exactly. Oh, look, it's sunset. Oh, look, it's this, you know, object. And it's, oh, and there's the perfect, you know, composition of thirds. And it's like, those are learned behaviors. Mm-hmm. And they will create repetitive stereotypical images because anybody can do them. You you know, your mind can cope with that. But the image that nobody else can make is the one that comes from your intuitive response. Yeah, and it's also reflected in people who are really into photography in which they emulate different photographers yeah, like right. Alex Webb, you know, his later composition. And so you see that same thing where people never get to the point where they're really expressing something honest and true of themselves. It's yep. just merely a reflection of the, the photographs that they're consuming. And those are just tools and they're, and they're important. I don't diss them. I mean, I think yeah. it's important for, I mean, I'll say it to my students sometimes too. It's like, there's a reason to know the rules or there's a reason to, you know, to, to learn what makes a complex composition hang together, you mm-hmm. know, but, but there's, then there's a space where you, you have to work completely with n- n- no thought for those rules because following rules is what makes us all the same. Yeah. There are things you need to have in common as a language, you know, I'm okay with that. But if you want to make an image that, that somebody looks at and it's like, whoa, that's, that's so-and-so or wow, nobody else could have made that photograph. It's because nobody else could, really could. I mean, when I send students out on these assignments that are the most simple assignments and they see how everybody has a completely different visual answer to the question, yeah. it starts to blow their minds, right? And, and I'm always fascinated with the work it's because, it's, because people are in this really vulnerable space that's just about, I'm showing you. I'm showing you who I am, mm-hmm. you know, and, and th- those photos then come back into part of your, your arson, you know, if you're doing reportage or long-term work or whatever, just, but that, mm, one of the best gifts you can give yourself as a photographer is to find the spaces to work like that, where you don't have a voice in your head or you don't have an agenda, you don't have an assignment, you know. There are thousands of people from all over the world who listen to this show every week. And though I hear from you every once in a while in emails or or when I go to events, I've been wanting to find a way for all of you to get to know each other. So what I want to offer you is a little something. I want you to be the person that introduces the show. Each week, I'd like to have a different listener to share who you are, where you're from, and introduce the show. It would sound something like, I'm Paul Anthony Gonzalez from Miami, Florida, and welcome to The Candid Frame. That's it. Nice and simple and clean. Your name, where you're from, and the introduction to the show. You'd then provide me a link to your website or Instagram feed, and I would include that in the show notes for that week. How does that sound? You could record it in any variety of ways using your computer or your smartphone, but just just try to make it as good quality audio as you can. Use a microphone if you have it, but 
More importantly, find a nice, quiet place to record it, and then send the file to me via email at info at thecandidframe.com. That's it. You don't even have to be a Patreon supporter to do this, but if you aren't, why not make the time to support the show today by committing $5 or more a month to our Patreon campaign, which helps to sustain and improve the show. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thanks. Well, let's, let's take, the spine of this conversation that we're having about photography. In which I'm like talking a lot. No, no, this, Hey, this is, this is a podcast. This is, this is, I love this stuff. So let's take the spine of what we're doing and, and sort of just shift it in terms of the story that you were telling in Bosnia and that you've told subsequently Mm -hmm. in terms of there is traditional narrative, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better word, in terms of what happens after war, after the soldiers have left and, you know, all the diplomats have signed their papers and done the handshakes. And you go in with those same ideas and concepts in, in your head, because that's in growing up, you hear that same narrative over and over and over again. So you go out to Bosnia to, to tell a story of what, it's, what the aftermath of conflict really is. How do you, or how did you, get to the point where you could move past that those, you know, assumptions, those cliches that you yourself had and allow the story to sort of reveal itself and not be adversely influenced by your assumptions or your perceptions going in. Well, the good thing going into that was like, there's not really a lot of narrative around post-conflict storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's not, there aren't, Unless maybe you go research the Marshall Plan, you know, or, you know, or something like that after World War II, there weren't any narratives for me to follow. the The narrative, mm-hmm. the most dominant narrative in news and photojournalism at the time, was war. It was Afga- uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, and those were all the awards and all the assignments and all the headlines. And I get that. I grew up in journalism. I know what headline what headlines are for. So there wasn't anything hanging over me. You know, in in a way of like that I had to emulate, but I did have that part of me as a journalist, like the I mentioned the topic areas as I thought about it. Well, like how would I, how would I tell this is what it takes to you know put a country back together again, or this is this is what post conflict looks like. You know, the media's gone on, but you know here's the stories. It's refugees returning. It's mm-hmm bodies being dug up or whatever. So that so on one level because I this is my first project transitioning from a journalist, I get to hang on to those. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's that. It's the breaking into the poetry of a story that I find so meaningful. Mm. It's the disassociation with a linear narrative and it's the willingness to go into abstract spaces. It's the willingness to, you know, to take something that's a marker of something or something that, you know, says something. I mean, I, I, I can tell you one place that I broke through on that. It was um, there's a very slim chapter in the in the book called Love and Death. It's about the exhumations, and I spent tons of time with these two Polish forensic anthropologists who'd worked in the graves for years because there were so many mass graves of largely Bosnian Muslims, and they helped me learn. They so I'd spend time with them. I'd be in rooms with them. I'd be at excavations where there were just these hideous, smelly, horrible pits. I'd be in rooms where skeletons had been cleaned and laid out with the clothes that had been found with them so that people could hopefully identify their family members and then 
DNA processing would follow. I was with them as they were cleaning bones. I mean, I spent like every type of situation you could have with them. And they, I remember them telling me that, that they thought they were, what they were telling was a story about life. Because they, by giving the name back to the person who'd been in a mass grave, they were giving them back their life. And the families, you know, they were giving them back their loved ones. And so that kind of starts to crack you open a little bit, right? From like, it's just about DNA and bones and mm-hmm. the numbers and statistics and, and what happened during the war. But I, for oh, the first two or three years easily, and like I said, I was in a lot of mass graves. I didn't take very good pictures of it. I remember looking at the pictures at one point and going, you're not close enough. And it's like, oh, I don't want to be any closer to this than I am. You know, I did not. It was especially the graves. I felt like I'd gotten some things in some of the witnessing spaces of people looking at them, but not the graves. And they're, all my pictures from before that, I'm on the rim of something. You can see, like, you know, the the big diggers pulling things out. I was like, oh, geez, I need to be closer. Oh, and I kind of let it sit. And I didn't, you know, I didn't think about it for a while. And I think it was on the next trip, I was in a one of the mass graves of Srebrenica victims. And this woman, Eva, the lead forensic anthropologist, she called to me and she said, bring my camp, bring, she had a little like point and shoot camera. And she said, I want you to take a picture. And she called me into the pit. And I don't think I had ever gone into the exhumation pit before. And I was like, oh, Eva, I don't want to do that. And, and, and she's like, no, come on, come on. It's really important. So I pick up her little camera and my leg is you know, strung around my shoulders. And, and I, I kind of go over to her and I have to stand on a mound as they excavate mounds. So it's mm-hmm. literally got bones and mud and stuff in it. And I'm like just kind of putting my foot where I see mud, no bones. And, and she's you know, she and her assistant are really kind of going after this group of bodies and clothes. And I'm like, oh. And, and she's going, Sarah, here, look here. And so I like, I put her little point and shoot up to my eye. And like, I nearly threw up because she was holding the preserved hand. Uh, preserved, not like we would think of hands mm-hmm. today, but unusually well-preserved hands of of what had been a teenage boy from Srebrenica mm. attached to his body. And, and it was a really important forensic anthropological thing, and she wanted me to document it. And so as I took the picture for her and, and was just like, oh, my God, I, I, let me get out of here fast, I was like, oh, no, Sarah, that's the picture you've been waiting to make. And I picked up the Leica, and I made a photograph of Eva and Piotr in that grave with those surrounded by these horrible things. And Eva is holding the hand of this boy. And it's like the final image in the love and death chapter. It's the definitive, it's one of the most definitive images in my career because I realize that that though that's the place I want to stand after mm-hmm. war. I want to be there when humanity shows up and says, no, you don't get the last word. The evil that made this happen, you know, the horror that was in this moment, you don't get the last word because we show up, you know, because we're human, because we aren't going to say, you know, that's the end. We're here. And the really odd thing, so remember I told you earlier, I have a, lots of fine art influences. Right. It took me six months of, of looking at that picture before I understood that what I had made was an echo of the Sistine Chapel when Jehovah touches the hand of mm-hmm. Adam and gives him life. And I was like, whoa. So I don't think I could... So all, all of my history and things I know and things that move me, my art references, they're all there. You know, I'm not having to sit there and access them. I'm, not, I'm also dealing completely with like total revulsion of the space that I'm in, mm-hmm. but quieting all of that and saying, no, there's an image 
that wants to be seen here. You know, it wasn't, I didn't do any great magic, I don't think, but I needed to see it. And it did not let me go. So I think like that's an image to me that's very much to the heart of, of what you're talking about, where I had to give myself to the space, to the emotions, and the best of me, the things that move me as a visual person, were all there to support me. You know, we're all there to go, Sarah, 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 Sistine Chapel, yeah. Sistine Chapel, not even conscious of it, you know, but like every no. other part of me is going, that's your frame. Yeah, and there, there's certain photographs that just demand to be made. Yeah. And, and in my experience, there's, there's sometimes been resistance to making the photograph for what whatever you, what reason. What have you found? Has it shown? Oh, sometimes, it sometimes this just see some. I see something about to play out with yeah. somebody on the street, yeah. and I know that in order to get the shot that I know needs to be made, I have to move in. I have to get close. Mm -hmm. I have to, I have to risk invading someone's space or being recognized in order for that image to happen. But there's just I feel it right here mm -hmm. in my gut. Mm -hmm. It's just like it's there. Are you going going to do it? And sometimes I've done it, and sometimes I haven't. But I, even though I don't relate to the the, the circumstances that you just described, the the physical experience is exactly of that, course it the is. Same. And it's just like it's, and that's so your visual voice is speaking. It's hearing the photo. You know, I mean, that's what's going on, and that's when intellect and common sense and <laughs> everything else get in the way. You know, and those are those are the things that I think we have to learn to roll back, to put in the closet, to tie up and say, not here and not now, because yeah. I need to be present, you know, with the, this visual language. Yeah, it's exact, I think that's, it's just sort of like a, like a heart charge, right? Mm -hmm. And, and if, you're, if you're thinking from your head, you're not going to be hearing your heart. Oh, no. Yeah, you don't recognize those moments if you're not in that space. Right. If you're in your head all the time, moments like that pass right. you up all the time. Um, there's, there was another part of your work in terms of... Uh, documenting the aftermath of conflict was in Sierra Leone. Mm. And that, I think, was really sort of interesting. And what I kind of want to explore is, in those, you were making photographs of these um, of these girls who had been attacked and violated. And there was a, so there's a two-part thing in Sierra Leone. One was a collaboration with an ex-girl soldier. Okay. We did it together. And the other was the documentation of the recreation of this cultural tradition of resolving conflict through conversation. That's Fomble Talk. Okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, it, which it, I made a documentary it, film, ultimately. Yeah, I want to talk about both. But okay. the first one is the one that you did with, with, with the girl. And I thought yeah. that was really sort of fascinating to me because you made your photographs of her, but she also had the opportunity to take the camera and create images that reflected her experience. And I thought, wow, that is really sort of fascinating in terms of each of you creating images of someone's life experience one person who is very savvy in terms of image making and composition, and someone who is strictly just coming from the gut. She know? was astonishing. And so, I so what did you expand on what that you know what that collaboration was about, and what you learned uh, from it as a photographer and a storyteller. I found her, I used the pseudonym Mariam. I couldn't use her real name at the time, and I, so I still don't. But she was to be testifying at the special court against Charles Taylor, who was the mm -hmm. president of Liberia, but he was indicted for his role in uh, the war in Sierra Leone and Blood Diamonds. So I couldn't use her name. I learned about her through somebody at the special court who had done some work with her. I knew that she was really creative. Um, she'd staged a play. You know, People were like, oh, this is a great 
this is a great person for you to meet. And she was living in a, a place outside of Freetown, the capital, that wasn't where she was from. She tried to go back to her village but couldn't. She was an ex-child soldier. She had been the bush wife of a very high-up commander who was Liberian. I The project was about... It's part of my Guggenheim work. It's called Forgiveness and Conflict, Lessons from Africa. And I was exploring forgiveness traditions in post-conflict African countries and and learning and kind of amazed by it. So that's part of what we were talking about was forgiveness because she she couldn't figure out how to ask for forgiveness because she couldn't remember the people that she'd hurt and wounded or killed, Mm. you know, and... And I went with her, oh, I was out there, I don't know, three or four times probably. But the second time I went, she said, why don't you teach me how to use your camera? And I said, yeah, okay. And I had a digital with me and I had my Leica. So I gave her the DSLR as a Canon. I kind of just kind of showed her, here's what you push and here's, and she was really insistent. And she's like, okay. She said, you know, I'm going to show you. And I had a translator there, but she's, she walked me through that village and she would stop and take pictures all along the way, like really intently. And, and, I, and I just let her shoot. And I, when we finished and we went back and we looked at the photos on the back of the camera and I asked her what they were about. And this work is on um, my website, forgivenessandconflict.com. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's called In My Life, The Story of an Ex-Girl Soldier. And she had made, I wound up making an edit of a dozen pictures but she told me the story, the metaphorical story, she understood metaphor, of what she had done as an ex-girl soldier. What had happened, how she was abducted, what she, things that she did. And she, and she was so honest. A lot of the ex-child soldiers would just kind of go, I, no, I didn't do anything. Miriam mm. was really honest about what had happened. She was a really powerful person. But she, there was this one moment where we were walking through the village and she encountered a friend of hers who had a, a little baby with her. And the, the little girl started crying. She, they set her on the ground and she kind of rolled over on her back. Not, you know, dangerously, but she rolled over on her back and she just was cranking. She started crying. And I watched Miriam just like completely like her head snapped and she went over and shot pictures just a couple of the girl and when we were talking about the picture and and bear in mind I'd explained like metaphor you Mm -hmm. know the metaphor is like this is something it's not like this is like something which is simile but metaphor is literally that's me or that's and she we got to that picture and she said this little girl is me. She's lying on the road crying exactly the way I did when I begged the soldiers not to rape me. Mm. The, the level of her, and then there's a lot of other things that she talked about in that story, and this is what we did, and this is, this is how, where I hid, and all using her village to do it. And then I did some collaborative things. I did a, a portrait of her where I had to hide her actual identity, mm. and we shot together in the mosque where she does try to find forgiveness. And, I, I, you know, I... I really, really, really dislike photographers who talk about giving voice to people because that's just bullshit. Everybody has a voice. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a voice. Not one of us gives a voice to somebody else. We're all born with them. We have them. We know how to use them. Sometimes we use them at the top of our voices and sometimes we use them to tell secrets. But we have a voice. The only thing a photographer do can do or a writer or anybody else may be to give the room for that voice to be amplified. You know, Miriam had a voice. She didn't, I, I had nothing, to, I just needed mm-hmm. to get out of the way of that voice and listen to her. I gave her a camera to let her, to let her use her visual voice. So, and I, and I could see that for her, she was now, I think she was 21 by this point. She had been abducted when she was 11. 
to see somebody whose own whose narrative was taken away from them as a child by adults by men her her narrative was completely taken and written by others to watch her and the authority she had from telling her own narrative was amazing and i i think that's i i try to work collaboratively whenever i can from since then i've learned so much from that i'm so much more interested in when it's a project that involves somebody else's life story, I'm so much more interested in what they want to say about themselves, too. I work that way with the homeless now and the big encampment down in Orange County that was one of the largest homeless encampments in America, and it was mm-hmm. closed last year. But I worked with the people there. You know, I had them write on my photos. We, I mean, it was a really wonderful collaborative process. I think it's really humbling and really wonderful to realize that you're not the most important voice in the room, and you're not the only one who can tell the story or can even tell the story the best. I know a lot of photographers who would bristle at that statement. <laughs> <laughs> the, the second part of that is is the forgiveness rituals that practiced mm-hmm. um, throughout Africa, which is really sort of fascinating. I, I got a, uh, I first heard of that after the events in South Africa, the end of apartheid, and that was like, it was the first time I'd ever heard the concept, and it's been an important part of some of the work that you you've done. Can you? I know it's sort of a hard thing to sort of encapsulate, but why don't you share with us what that's about and how do you, how did you approach it uh, from a visual perspective in terms of telling that story? So I first encountered the idea of forgiveness in Sierra Leone before I even met Miriam, the ex-girl soldier, but I first encountered this idea of it as a, as a, as a way to restore relationships. And there had been a tradition in Sierra Leone called Fumble Talk, which means family talk, which involved resolving conflict through conversation. And I met a young human rights activist um, who wanted to restore this tradition as a way to heal at the village level things that had happened in the war, because the special courts came in and indicted 12 people that they thought were the most responsible you know, for causing the war. And the relatives of those people like had parties when they went in because they knew they were going to have great facilities and, you know, access Mm. to the internet and stuff. It didn't touch anybody's lives in a country where villager to villager neighbors had harmed each other. So that's what this restoration of Fumble Talk was about. And I got to document that photographically. And I also made a documentary film about it that was supported by Sundance and premiered at South by Southwest. And it did, it's I don't know, I think played at a couple hundred festivals around the world. But part of that led me to want to know more because there's there's certain, so 52 countries in Africa, or is it 53, all different, even within one country, different tribes, different traditions. So you can't generalize, and I don't mean to sound like that, but there is a distinctly African tradition of the importance of community over the individual. You, you cannot be healthy as an individual if your community isn't healthy, Mm -hmm. which is very different to what we have in the West. So, and there was also, there were no jails in Africa until the colonial powers came. There was constantly an effort to, you would bring a wrongdoer in the presence of the community. They have to confess to what they've done. That's a really important part. You confess um, and take responsibility. You apologize and ask for forgiveness. And the the cultural mandate response is to forgive. The work is in the reconciliation that follows, the reparations that happen. And I think this is still more rooted or more practiced or prevalent in more rural spaces where it can be done. Urban spaces can be so anonymous and nondescript. But I've talked to people who've lived in cities and who understand these comments. And the idea is, uh, there's a, a proverb for it in Sierra Leone, there's no bad bush to throw away a bad child. 
which mm. means you can't, we can't afford to get rid of anybody. I mean, they see humans as resources. And if you take somebody away from the community and put them in jail, you've taken away the resources that person might have for the community's good and put them in jail and the community's having to pay for them to be in jail. So it just like doesn't make sense in that context and in that way of, of maintaining, you know, the health and vibrancy of a, of a community. So I looked at it in a lot of places. South Africa became, I wasn't going to go there originally because people would always go, oh, you mean like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa? And I'd be like, no, I'm talking about bonfires in villages in Sierra Leone where perpetrators and victims face each other, mm. you know, and in the presence of their communities. And the truth and reconciliation, but I realized because so many people referenced that, I was like, okay, I need to put that in the project. So when you ask what I photographed, in Fumble Talk, I was photographing communities and bonfires. I mean, there were things happening. I could do it that way. South Africa, I was like, you know, I have to anchor this project in South Africa or included as a chapter. And my chapter is called Landscapes from Nelson Mandela's South Africa because so many Westerners think that. You know, mm -hmm. they don't immediately kind of go, oh, right, that Fumble Talk tradition. They go, oh, right, that very European, yeah. you know, people in suits traditions that happened in South Africa. The genius of that was that it got the truth out for the first time. But as any South African will tell you, it had nothing to do with reconciliation. So that chapter is still waiting to happen. So in, in, in approaching South Africa, I was like, wow, you know, how do I tell this story? I had been on Robben Island, which is the, the former prison colony, the island off of Cape Town where Nelson Mandela and many other apartheid activists, anti-apartheid activists had been jailed. And I'd heard some stories of prisoners who'd forgiven their guards, you know, and the guards who'd been forgiven. I was like, maybe I could do portraits of that, you know, as a, just as a way of showing it and tell those stories. And then there were people, as I was talking, they're like, yeah, that's kind of touristy. You know, that's a bit gimmicky. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I don't want to do that. And then I had the idea of documenting every one of the 52 places where a truth and reconciliation hearing was held and trying to find somebody who had testified. Okay, I mean, so, so this is the part of me that's verbal, right? Yeah. And I still do research and work. <laughs> and I could, nearly impossible to track these things down. I think once I might have found that list and then I lost it. But I did find the first hearing and the last hearing. And I realized to tell this story as, as I kept reading and learning more about South Africa, every single person in South Africa is tied to the land. Everybody, whether you're Afrikaner, Black, I mean, everybody has a history in the land. And Nelson Mandela in his inaugural speech um, as president said, each of us is, is, you know, personally tied to the land of South Africa. That's, that's why I called it the chapter, you know, Landscapes from Nelson Mandela, South Africa. So I knew it had to be landscapes. And I, and mm -hmm. I knew I had to work in a medium format. I had a Mamiya 7. And I went and found the landscapes that were part of the history. They're from the Boer Wars to the to the Great Trek, you know, for the Afrikaners, to Soweto, you know, um, the Sharpsville uprisings, the shootings, you know, that happened there. They were. I I was in in a particular spot where the arms trade had been really active, where black tribes had been in conflict with each other, but it was the center of arms trade in South Africa. I went to the cemetery where Steve Biko, the black consciousness mm -hmm. activist, was buried. He was really I was a really young reporter when he died, and he was always in my mind, you know, as as part of that story. So I went and photographed the landscapes, and then I wrote these very short texts that told you more about that landscape. And in, 
one place there was an overlapping landscape that had been a really important. The Afrikaners, the concentration camps, the, they didn't start with Germans in World War II. They started with the Boer Wars. The British started them in South Africa. And both Afrikaners and blacks were in concentration camps. And the Afrikaner version of the story completely fails to mention that blacks were in concentration camps and actually suffered more than they did. But there, that's a key, you know, sort of part of an Afrikaner history. And there was this one place where there had been an Afrikaner concentration camp, and I went and I shot it, and there were these two... So it's like looking for the things that tell the bigger story. Mm-hmm. And you know how those signs that you find on the side of the road, like at the Grand Canyon, that say, here's yes. the north entry, mm-hmm. here's that? There were two of those signs, and they were completely destroyed. There was They were, they were rusted out. There was nothing left. Mm. The Afrikaner biggest fear is their history, them being wiped out of South Africa. And it also turned out that this was the same town where Winnie Mandela had been banished in the apartheid era. So these two, there were these overlapping histories in this landscape. So it was, that's the first time I've ever really worked in landscape, but I think it works. I've showed it to some, you know, Ann Tucker, again, people who I trust have been like, did I get this landscape thing right? Because I've never, you know, worked in that. And they're like, um, yeah. So... It's a sad to understand you could try to tell this complex history of a place that has not reconciled. I mean, I talk about the project, that chapter is a way of imagining the landscape of reconciliation. Mm. You know, uh, for me, you know, and I, mean, I would never presume to think I could, you know, speak to, you know, for a South African. But so, so it was all over the place. You know, in Rwanda, everybody kind of like loves to think Rwanda is some great big reconciliation story. Like, no, it's not. It's a pretty scary and dangerous place where the current president, who like the West has adored for years until recently when he kind of made constitutional changes that just about make him president for life. But for years, because he made economic stuff happen there, the West thought he was amazing. And yet he's an autocrat and there's no freedom of the press and there's all this suppressed mm. language in, in Rwanda. So, And you can't really shoot without being licensed or having some kind of permit. So I shot there with my iPhone and that chapter is postcards from oh, Rwanda. Okay. So I, And again, I had to work in metaphor to to explain these deeply rooted, deeply hidden conversations that aren't happening. I mean, there's certainly been some genuine reconciliation in progress, but oh my goodness, Mm. the messaging in that country, which is all about messaging Tutsis, Mm -hmm. who were the the discriminated against. They were the ones who were suffered in the genocide, Tutsis and moderate Hutus. But the entire visual landscape of Rwanda is being remade in the likeness of Tutsis. It's like, you can't, to be Miss Rwanda, to apply, to... Yeah. Participate in the pageant. You have to be five foot seven inches tall. The average Hutu is five foot four. There's almost never. It's almost a good a guarantee there will never be a Hutu wow. Miss Rwanda. So those kind. So like, how do I do that visually? And I, you know, and that's where I worked in postcards from Rwanda with my iPhone. Let's talk about the aftermath project. Tell us a little bit about the idea behind it and why it's become so important to you. Uh, two years into the Bosnia work, I took a workshop at Santa Fe. The Santa Fe workshops. Mm-hmm. I'd never shown the Bosnia work. I mean, I was still, you know, barely a photographer. And I took a class with Sam Abel for photographers working on long-term projects. I'm going to be talking to him later today. Oh, I tell Sam I said hi. He kept asking this one question. It's like, what impact do you want your work to have? And I was like, ah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, as a journalist, I could tell you. I mean, as a journalist, you know, my work was used to pass laws in Congress. I, you know, I mean, it was, you know, the United Nations used one series to help write the draft on the, you know, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. I know impact with that, but I was like, I have no idea. 
And because I didn't, it was just this project I felt I had to do. And so I kept thinking about it. And then I was like, yeah, I know what I'd like the impact of this, of this work to be. It would be that younger photographers know that they don't have to be conflict photographers, that that's not the only path, you know, that you could be an aftermath photographer. And I was like, so, I was like, God, that's such a good answer. <laughs> and then, yeah. And, uh, and about 24 hours later, I was like, okay, Sarah, let's think about this. Nobody knows who you are as a photographer. You're doing an aftermath project on a war that the West really didn't care about in the first place. And you think that somehow you're going to inspire other photographers to be post-conflict storytellers? It was like, get a grip. And I went like, oh, right, okay. And then, like, almost immediately on the heels of that, and I have no idea why there was no filter in my head that day that said, what the heck are you thinking? That's going to be really hard. But the next thought was like, well, then I'll just start a grant program. You know, we'll, I'll raise, we'll give a grant, and it'll be a competition, and and we'll start funding, you know, we'll start funding, like, <laughs> me, me, and me, you know, post-conflict storytelling. That's, that's, how to, that's how to make the impact. And I was like, I don't know what I was thinking because like, I was still in the same place mm-hmm. covering a war that nobody cared about and only like two years into it as a photographer. I mean, I believe so deeply that war is only half the story. You know, those are the six words that, that have really become like the catch line for the Aftermath Project. I know that there are moments of great heroism and humanity during wartime, but in general, I think humanity, I mean, war is the story of our inhumanity and how we destroy. And I think aftermath is the story of where we learn to live again, where we learn to reassert our humanity and where our humanity is what gets us through. So I don't know, it just became, I did, it was just sort of step by step. It was probably three years before we gave the first grants. It involved you know, getting photographers to donate prints and do auctions for the first mm-hmm. year of grants and finding an advisory board. It, it, it was kind of crazy because, again, like I said, nobody really knew who I was as a photographer, but I don't know. I had a, We had an amazing group of prints that, you know, raised $35,000 in that first year, and we did two grants. And then other funders came on pretty quickly, Open Society. And I think, I think it was just because that, that was a really simple idea. War is only half the story. And they understood it. And they also, at that time in particular, because it was all war all the time, mm-hmm. they were the awards. I mean, I get, I respect my colleagues who risk their lives, but there's also plenty of people who, you know, parachute in and out of conflict or think that's the way to go make a name for themselves, which is bullshit, you know, and, and it's, I mean, and there's a long and, and respected tradition of it in photography. It's one of our dominant narratives. So aftermath is a counter narrative. You know, I mean, that's, I think that's what all my life is in many ways, is building counter narratives. And I... You know, it hit the ten-year mark, and I'm I'm right where we we've also you were a judge as we started granting again. It's we've we've done our eleventh grant. We're looking for ways now to to find long-term funding or a way to anchor the work. I'm ready to have somebody else run it. You know, I mean, I will always be a voice for it and always be part of it. But I. I have other work to do, you know, I've I've joined Seven, I'm a filmmaker, there's just other things I need to do. I don't personally feel I have any more post-conflict stories in me, which is fine, that's the way I work, I move through things, you know, but as one of my board members says, it's obvious, but it's like, as long as there's conflict, there's got to be an aftermath project. What was interesting in sitting in, going through all that work, because there's so much work that we spend all day was was the chance to see people who were from the communities mm. and the countries mm. wanting to tell their own their own stories. And over the span of ten years, you've probably seen a lot of that. What has, how has that impressed you? Rather than someone from the outside coming in and documenting and telling the story, what have been your takeaways from seeing 
all the various submissions over the last over the last decade taught you in terms of what's what's possible in terms of people telling their own stories? Well, to be fair, I would say that most of our grants have actually gone to people going to a place to tell a story. Mm -hmm. So it's only been in the past couple of years, right, that the photo world has more been more committed and more aware and found more resources of photographers in other parts of the world. I mean, I remember once we ran a, a grant that um, Howard Buffett's foundation funded in the Western Sahel region of Africa, and I reserved one of those grants specifically for an African photographer. I said it was, it was really important that we have someone from the continent. There were only four applications at that time from, and, and we gave it to an African photographer, but we couldn't find, you know, they're just, it was more limited in outreach and what we could find. So that's just a caveat. Okay. So we've had a lot of, maybe somebody from the region, you know, has told it. Uh, and sometimes it's been a pure outsider. I have nothing against outsiders going in and telling stories. I'm very interested in how a Vietnamese photographer would portray America. You know, I want to see that. Mm, yeah. So I don't think I'm not of that what I feel is kind of the PC thing. I am very much a proponent of amplifying opportunities so that people from a region can also participate in, in global narratives uh, you know, and, and specifically their own narrative. We had a wonderful photographer, one of our finalists, ooh, maybe in year three, Saiful Hook Omi, who was reporting on the Rohingya back then, mm. like 10 years ago, you know, so, and a story that, an outsider wouldn't have paid any attention to at all. And he was a finalist. He didn't get the grant. But in naming finalists, that's a really important, as you know now, you've been yeah. a judge. It's a really important thing to us because uh, in the first 10 years, we did an annual book that was of the grant winner and finalist work. Um, we'll probably be doing exhibitions instead of that going forward. But our 10th anniversary book, grant winners and finalists, I mean, we really want to you know elevate and, and expose those stories. So I'm excited I don't know, I was just looking at some portfolios of African photographers. Yesterday, my photo agency is open for new members seven, and we're looking at, at all kinds of people and places. And I saw some amazing work from the African continent, you know, which is, which is it's, it's indigenous, it's rooted there. Yeah. It's not like, it's like, oh, because the West went and taught them things or whatever. It's a, so that's exciting to me. But it's a, I think that's the space we're in right now as an industry. Okay. I, in understanding, like I said, that we don't have the loudest voice in the room. Let, let me ask a follow-up that's tied to an answer you gave before. And yeah. You were talking about the beauty pageants which, mm. and the and sort of the criteria that's established that you know, distinguishes Tootsies and Hutus. And, mm. So in terms of these photographers from other parts of the world entering contests, competitions, grants, and they're coming from a very different experience, access to any to certain materials or, you know, all that stuff. And the criteria by which they're being judged is one that's largely been established by Western sensitivities. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's necessary to ensure that people who have those stories to tell, who are making photographs that may not necessarily sort of fall in line with what's been sort of traditionally accepted, what, what needs to be done in order for those people to take advantage of the opportunities that so many people have always been afforded? That's a good question. I would say internally at the Aftermath Project, I always, if I found a photographer from a place, I made sure you know that, that application stayed in contention or was brought to the attention of judges because I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. It's not the role of the Aftermath Project 
to help develop visual voices in other parts of the world. That's not our mission. You know, our mission is in awarding grants, and, and we have certainly awarded to a pretty wide, you know, variety of people and a, and a probably almost 50-50 men and women, you know, storytellers. I think programs, mentorships, you know, are, are important. Photo agencies, NOR7 are doing that. I think World Press Photo is trying to open up and hold master classes. I think there's an obligation on us as the, God, what, the world with power. I, I mean, I love um, the, the phrase majority world, which is, mm-hmm. means like everybody who's not white, because you know, like it's, <laughs> they are the majority. So we think there's an obligation that the rest of us have. We've gone and sort of used those canvases for storytelling and into advanced careers, have an obligation to, to give back. I think if people, I, I think with the way people are more connected in social media today, you know, you can reach out if you're, if you are from a majority world country or don't have an infrastructure, there's ways to say, can you, you know, can you help me with this? Can you show me this? But I think, you know, there's, if you need to take a workshop, you know, if you, and there are workshops, you know, held in a lot of places and, and for free for, you know, for people, but just because you're from a place, if you're not a good photographer, it doesn't mean you should win a grant. And, and I realize mm-hmm. that could sound kind of brutal, and I don't mean it to. Yeah. But I do think it's incumbent on our industry to go, all right, then, we're going to meet you where you are with workshops, mm-hmm. like is being done by some of the organizations I've, I've been talking about or mentoring. I mean, Seven has, we have, we have several mentees in, in majority world countries that work with Seven photographers to become better. So it's just, I just don't think it automatically means you should get a grant just because you're from the place, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's not the type of organization the Aftermath Project is. I think there should be up organizations to do that. If that makes sense, does no, that sound harsh? No, 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 no. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, we were faced with you know some of the same issues when we were making judgments. Yeah, you know, during right. during, during, the, during the contest. Yeah. So it's it's like you have to sort of balance it out, not just in terms of quote unquote the quality of the work, but the likelihood that this person is going to be able to see it through. Yeah. Which is a big a big big criteria. I think a lot of people just think that it's based on aesthetics or, or a really interesting story. It's yeah. so much more uh, involved, especially with the grants that that you're offering that is contributing to people producing this. Yeah, and building a conversation. And it's not work that just goes and sits on a shelf, which yeah. some grants are kind of like, here's your money, you can go do whatever. I mean, the Aftermath Project has an outcome, right? We, we've done the book and now exhibitions. We're building a conversation. We're educating the public. If I had the funding, if it, you know, I mean, I've worked my butt off to raise every penny that we have given away mm-hmm. over the years. But if I had the funding, I would absolutely want to institute that kind of a program. I mean, because education is always been part of our outreach. We do lesson plans for schools. So, I would, you know, if somebody wanted to fund that, we could absolutely build in some sustained workshop work in post-conflict countries, you know, for photographers who are there. I would love to do that. It gives me an idea for a funder. I can ask about that, actually. <laughs> um, one, one last question before I ask you my really last question. <laughs> um, your father once made an observation about you when you were in college oh, I told you that. about him seeing you as a leader, oh. which I think at the time when he said that to you, you were surprised by. I but, but given the many things that you've accomplished in, in your life, especially as a photographer and as the founder of, the, uh, of this Aftermath Project, what, what do you think about yourself now through the filter of what your father saw so many years ago? I should tell what my dad said. Yes. Do you want to know that story? Yeah. I think I was, I don't know, like 21 or 22. My father really imaginative but very scientific man who worked on the Gemini and Apollo projects. 
we, I forget why on earth I was, I had said something. And um, he goes, sis, that's what he called me, sis. He goes, sis, you know, you're a natural born leader. <laughs> I just, I just like laughed out loud because whatever I just told him, it was so like completely not about being a leader. And mm-hmm. I was like, wow, dad, that's really interesting. Because if, if you looked behind me, because like there's nobody following that's not exactly a leader, right? And he said, no, Sarah. He goes, you know, it's what you do. He said, you see the, the place to go, and you just go. And he said, and, and others, other people catch up. He said, that's a natural-born leader. And I remember, I mean, I'm still kind of, like, it gets me a little choked up thinking about that, to think of the permission that my father gave me at a really, you know, young age as a young woman, mm-hmm. you know, especially at a different time and gender relations and things in, in our culture and in profession, and that he, he pretty much said, it doesn't matter. You know, you, you're an original thinker. or you're, I mean, I don't know what he was, I mean, here's a man who helped put man on the moon who had to think through some crazy things. So what he was seeing in me to like go, yeah, you just go where you think you need to go. And people follow. And that he gave me that is like, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. If people follow or not, so I think, I think that's in many ways I internalize that, and I think that that's why I've just moved across media. That's why I've done. I've always worked. Maybe like, like, oh, what's your five year plan? I'm like, oh my god, if I had a five year plan, it would blow up in my face. I mean, it's always I've always worked really intuitively. I've done what I felt I had to do because it needed to be done. I mean, and part of what my dad said is probably what gave me. Maybe that's the voice in my head that was like, yeah, I'll start a grant program. Maybe that was my dad saying, go for it. I think so, too. But what an incredible permission to give to people to say vision and capacity and accomplishment don't have anything to do with how many people tell you that you're right. Mm, It's beautiful. Well, my last question is I ask each guest to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be? Urias. He's a Nigerian, I think he's a Nigerian photographer and it's not his name. I just was looking at his work yesterday. He's Moroccan and his Instagram post or or handle is Y-O-R-I-Y-A-S. Yeah. Blew my mind. I mean, he's got a lot of followers. I'm probably like the last person in the world to discover him. But yeah. Yeah, really cool stuff. I follow him too. Yeah. See, you knew. (laughs) What can I I say? (laughs) Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Sarah for sharing her time and story with us. You can find out more about her and her work by visiting her website at sarahterry.com. And for more information on The Aftermath Project, visit theaftermathproject.org. And this summer, I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the Focus on the Story Photographic Conference. This international photo festival will feature some of the world's best photojournalists and documentary photographers, as well as talks, photo walks, and workshops, of which I am teaching one. If you want to sign up for the workshop or you just want to find out more about the event, visit focusonthestory.org. And remember to check out my YouTube channel, where I discuss different aspects of photography by pulling images from listeners like you who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. You can check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. 
In it, I translate how to see and use light and shadow, line and shape, color and gesture to make great photographs. It's more than just how to make a good picture every once in a while. It's, it's about a way of developing your own personal and intimate way of seeing and documenting the world around you. You can order the book today. When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code Pirello40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you've been hearing on the show, please take the time to write a review in the iTunes Store, Spotify, or the Google Play Store, or wherever you find and listen to podcasts. And if you write a review on a blog post, let me know and send me a link because I would really like to thank you on air. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Francesco Scaglioni, Colin Gavril Goya, and Peter McClellan for their recent contributions. Thank you so much. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download The Candid Frame app. It's available for Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. And we also have an Alexa app. So if you have one of those smart devices, download the skill and listen to the show that way. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbarianX. And this is IbarianX, and this is The Candid Frame.